0: In 1961, there was a Nazi war criminal who was put on trial, and famous psychologist Stanley Milgram set out to answer the question, how could people like these Nazi soldiers knowingly follow such horrific orders in the ways that they slaughtered the Jewish people? Because Everyone thinks like, I would never do that. I can't believe that these Nazis would do such a thing. I would never follow those kind of orders. And so he conducted this experiment measuring people's willingness to obey authority when it conflicts with your conscience. And so what he did was he would tell participants, they were told that they were participating in a different kind of experiment. So people would sign up for these experiments, be paid for it, and uh, they were told, you're, being, you're, doing, you're participating in an experiment about memory and learning, where you, the, 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 the participant, would administer electric shocks to uh, this learner who was separated uh, by a wall between you. And the learner was actually an actor. And so uh, what would happen is that You would administer an electric shock every time they got a wrong answer. And the goal was supposedly to see if that would help them to learn by inducing pain as a motivator to to remember things. But of course, the actors were coached to get things wrong at at particular times. And every time the person gets a wrong answer, the next time they got it wrong, you increase the voltage. And so to give you an idea, the voltage started from about 15 volts, and then you gradually increase, 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 all the way up the top setting was 450 volts. Now, for those of you who are unfamiliar, at about 150, 200 volts is lethal. It's fatal to the human body. Okay? And so, uh, now, the good news is, uh, this is back when there were not as many standards <laughs> with social psychology experiments. So the good news was that, that the, the people weren't actually shocked. They were just actors. They were, they would act, they were in the other room, and what, but what, with each time that, that the participant had to turn up the voltage, what the actor would do is they would start to protest, like, stop, stop, like it's, it's too painful. Uh, and some actors were coached to start complaining about their heart condition as they're receiving these electric shocks. At 300 volts, they were told to bang on the wall and say, "Demand their release out from this experiment," because they were strapped to this electric device. And then anything above 300 volts, the actors were instructed to fall silent. Nothing like, so I want you to imagine being this person, this participant, like having to administer the electric shocks, and uh, they recorded all this on video. And so you can actually look this up on YouTube if you want, but you can see like these distraught people who are like, you know, like, oh, and the, but the, 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 the uh, experimenter's saying, you've got to continue, let's keep going. And every time, here's the result. Every single person who participated went all the way up to 300 volts, past lethal, and in fact, of participants went fully up to 450, knowing that that was fatal. Now, when we look at that situation, I wonder what would it take for you and I to violate our conscience? You see, there's times that the world will pressure you or punish you if you don't comply with certain values that it holds. And so the question we want to answer this morning is, will you have the courage to stand when your faith is tested by fire? If you have a Bible, turn in it to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. There's Bibles underneath the seat in front of you as well if you want to follow along. We're continuing this series called Between Two Worlds. How do you live for Christ while living in the culture of Babylon? And through this book, we're discovering what uncompromising faith in god and faithfulness in the world look like and you might remember for those of you are tuning in for the first time maybe that because judah the nation of god's people had turned away from god towards idolatry and immorality just as god warned them and prophesied the babylonian empire comes in conquers them you want idolatry here now you get to be swallowed up by an idolatrous culture And it takes their sons, like Daniel and his friends, into service of a pagan king and culture. And the decisions that they have to make on a daily basis is, am I going to be shaped by life in Babylon or by God? Now, the good news is, as they're facing all these kind of compromises, they trust God and they remain faithful to him. And as a result, they receive so much of God's favor, including in chapter 2, we saw that God gave them knowledge and interpretation of king nebuchadnezzar's dream about this giant statue representing all the empires to come from after Bab- babylon and afterwards and uh, and so as a result the king is in awe of this power to be this god who reveals dreams he praises the lord as the god of gods the god above all other gods he makes daniel into his governor a lieutenant in babylon as well as the top dog over all the wise men advisors that he has and he even makes Daniel's friends, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, officials in the Babylonian Empire as well. <coughs> Excuse me. And so we see throughout the first two chapters, through the wisdom and power of God, that they're able to escape these compromising positions. But not this time. As we turn to chapter three, the question is how do they respond when their faith and their future are thrown into the fire? Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits, its breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the province to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then, the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald, it's very repetitive, as you can see, but they're trying to get a point across to you, right? Uh, and, uh, uh, And the herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, O people, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the people heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, And languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans, these Babylonian wise men, came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image, and whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in case you forgot. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Let's stop right there. What is happening here? In verses 1 to 3, King Nebuchadnezzar has gathered all the officials that of, his, uh, of the province of Babylon before this 60 cubits. 60 cubits is 90 feet, 90-foot-tall 90 golden statue that he has just had built. Why did he do that? Remember that dream? that God gave him about another great statue in chapter 2, that the head, this, this golden head, represented the greatness of Babylon, but that it wouldn't last forever. It would be followed by kingdoms of silver in part of the body, then bronze, and then iron, before the God of heaven, symbolized by the rock of heaven, comes and shatters that statue, ushering in his everlasting kingdom. That was the vision that God, that God had given to uh, Nebuchadnezzar. But it seems like the, the king learned the wrong lesson from this this story oh look at that dream that god gave me babylon the head is the most golden and glorious and so now what he's done he's built an entire statue out of gold the image of the king and kingdom of babylon ruling and reigning forever instead of other kingdoms to come just his and so in verses four to six he makes this decree okay When the DJ plays that funky song, everyone everywhere is going to throw their hands in the air, throw their face on the ground, and worship this gold image, or die by fire. And so in verse 7, all the people, all the nations, all the languages of Babylon under his thumb fall down and worship. And so this is a statue to which god? Which god of of the Babylonians? Do you know? It's not to any of their gods. It's a statue to the god of Babylon itself. They're worshiping the glory and the self-sufficiency of the king and kingdom of Babylon in place of any god. Now, here's where the story takes a little turn, right? In verses 8 through 12, all of these wise men, do you remember these wise men that, that were supposed to be helping and advising the king? The same wise men who failed the king in chapter 2, verse 12, who got saved, God saved through Daniel and his friends in chapter 2, verse 24, they turn against Daniel's friends now because that's how you play the game. That's how you get ahead. That's how you value success in Babylon. These guys who saved us, you have friends like that. You do them a favor. You rescue them from danger, and they turn, turn against you. So they come to the king. Oh, king, great king. You'll live forever, et cetera, et cetera. The flattery and a little bit of duplicity. You know that statue and the whole thing about the, the bowing and the dying and stuff like that? Well, we don't want to talk about Daniel because you know, we know he's your beloved right-hand man and stuff like that. But, you know those three friends of him, those three other Jewish guys that I know you only appointed out of kindness to Daniel, they don't respect you. They don't respect your gods. They don't respect your commands. What are you going to do? And so, I want you to see the issue here, okay? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they worship the Lord. And this is the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar is familiar with. He's, he's the one who gave him the dreams and interpreted his dreams, and Nebuchadnezzar called him the God above all other gods. You worship that God? No problem. But there are many gods in Babylon, and you need to serve ours too. And you need to bow in allegiance and deference to our king and kingdom, our cultures and values above your God just like everyone else. Bless you. And so what we see happening here is, like Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, there's going to be times that in your life you feel like I'm experiencing the favor of God. I've been experiencing the favor of men in my job or in my position or in my uh, reality. But the truth is that we need to be ready for Babylon to still threaten us to bow to its values and idols no matter what season of success or goodness you're going through. You see, the reality is there are times when the culture's principles and practices are going to be in opposition to the goodness of God and his word. And so you cannot be surprised when the world turns against you. Even people that you know, that people that you like, people that you thought you had favor with turn against you. And the the problem here is that if you refuse to bow to their image and their ethics, then you're going to find that suddenly you don't have as many friends as you thought. Now, I want you to get this straight. In our about Babylon today, you're never going to get in trouble for saying that Jesus is my personal Savior. You'll never get in trouble for Jesus being your personal Savior, but you will when you say that there is no other name under heaven given amongst men by which we must be saved. You'll get in trouble when you say things like he alone as Savior and Lord sets the standards about what is right and what is wrong, about sexuality and identity, about marriage and morality and money. And so society says to us, you're free to marry in a traditional way. Uh, you're free to save, your sex, uh, save sex for your marriage bed if that's your thing. That's fine and good. But how dare you label someone else's choice as sin? How dare you not bow to my sexual preferences? How dare you not bow to my political Messiah? How dare you not worship the treasures and pleasures of the American dream? How dare you not affirm that my preferences are just as valid as Jesus's? And if you don't, our culture will punish you. They may not throw you in a fiery furnace, but people will reject you, people will denounce you, businesses will boycott you, and that's just the same spirit of Nebuchadnezzar at work in our world today. So, how do followers of Jesus respond to something like that? Verse 13 Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true? O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, every kind of music to fall down, worship the image that I've made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? In verse 13 and 14, the king's fury is burning hot. He brings these three boys in. Is it true? You won't serve my gods. You won't bow to my image. So in verse 15, I'll give you a second chance. Let's do it this way. When the DJ plays my favorite song, you get down, you get busy worshiping this image of gold. Good. But if not, you're going to burn. And then in his infamous statement, what God can deliver you out of my hands? It's chilling, right? He was just giving glory to God, the Lord, in the last chapter, that he was the God above all other gods, the one who gave him this dream, the one that interpreted this dream for him. He worshipped him, I honored him, and yet he cannot save you from me, my decision to destroy you. And so in verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, this is how they reply. We don't even need time to discuss this in committee. Our answer is not going to change. Who can deliver us from the most powerful man in the world? Verse 17 and 18, the God we serve is able. And even if he doesn't, just so you know, O king, we will not bow. And if there's nothing else you get this morning, the big idea from this text is that like them, we need to be courageous to stand for our faith even when we face the fire. You see, in Romans chapter 13, the Apostle Paul instructs us that we need to respect and be subject to the government because their authority is from God. And so in most things, we need to respect and honor the authority above us. And Daniel and his friends, they do that. In chapters 1 and 2, they rely on the wisdom and power of God to honor the king, to honor their job while honoring God. And yet, those moments when the laws of men are in opposition to the goodness of God and his word. Then Acts chapter 5, verse 29 says, we must obey God rather than men. Okay, so what does that kind of courageous faith look like? How do you do that? Well, when we read this passage, I want you to see that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they declare two important principles that I believe can be a guide for us, a picture of how do we live out courageous faith to stand in the fire. They say two things, and I want you to see this. I believe that God can, and yet I trust him even if he doesn't. So let me break those down into two pieces for you. Verse 17, what, is it, what do they say to the king? The God we serve is able to deliver us. And so there's the first piece. Courageous faith declares that, believes that God can, that he can deliver us. And so it begins with knowing, courageous faith looks like Do I know that God is bigger? That God is bigger than this problem, than my anxiety, than my enemy? That God is bigger than my lost job, my broken marriage, my cancer? That God is bigger than my sin? That God is bigger than my shame? That God is bigger than the grave? Do I know with certainty that God is able? Because courageous faith believes that God can. But how do they know that God will deliver them from this fire? The answer is that they don't. You see in verse 18, they say, but if he doesn't, if not. So what's happening here is there's no direct promise from God. There's no direct prophecy saying that, yes, if you go into the fire for Jesus or for the Lord, then he'll rescue you from it. God doesn't pull them aside beforehand and kind of, hey, guys, here's what's going to happen and give them an explanation of how it's going to go down. So don't worry about it. Don't sweat it. Just trust me, right? They don't receive any direct commands or instructions or promises from God about this specific situation. But what they do know is they know God's goodness. They know God's willingness. They know God's word. Things like when King David proclaimed in Psalm 27, verse 13, I am convinced that I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. That God's goodness for us isn't just something that happens when we get to heaven someday after we die that we'll be rewarded someday. But he has this expectation that we will see God and his goodness break into my life, my family, my ministry, today, in this life. I want you to hear me clearly, because I don't want you to get mixed up with, there's all these prosperity cults that make up all these lies about how God will give you whatever you want. God is not a genie in a magic lamp. So you just rub him the right way and then he gives you what you want. That's not how it works. You see, there's times in God's goodness that he will say no to you or he will say wait about certain things. But what I want us to see from this passage this morning is where do you need to take a step of faith to honor and trust him because courageous faith believes that yes, God can. A couple of thoughts for you. Maybe for some of you, it's being able to Take a step of faith, believing that God can, by sharing your faith at school or at work. Even though it's awkward, I believe that God can. Maybe for some, it's taking a stand at work against something that's unrighteous, even though it may cost you in the short term. But I believe that God can. He can use this situation. For some of us, it's persevering in a prayer need that you've been praying for instead of giving up because you expect God's goodness to break through in his time, in his way, even if it's different from your own. Maybe for some of you, it's being able to surrender your anxiety or call an estranged family or maybe confess to a trusted friend your habit of pornography. Some of you might be starting a ministry. I know for a handful of you, God is calling you to take that bold, courageous risk to get baptized in his name. What is it? Where do you need to take a step of faith? Because courageous faith believes that yes, he can. There's many moments of courageous faith in the Bible that are not in direct response to a command from God or a promised outcome, but simply by believing that God can. But you also need to know that courageous faith also trusts God even if he doesn't. You see in verse 18, the boys, they don't, guarantee, like, we just named this thing and we claim this blessing from God. But if God doesn't, if God doesn't do this, you see, they believe that God is not only big enough to protect them from Nebuchadnezzar, they also believe that knowing him is better than anything that you ever give up in this life, including your very life itself. It reminds me of the Apostle Paul, who declares to us in Philippians chapter 1 verse 20 and 21 that with full courage I honor Christ in my body whether by life or by death for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain now Paul doesn't have a death witch, but what he does know is that courageous faith believes that God is not only bigger than the threats he's also better than all the alternatives What I mean is that there's times that you're going to take a stand for God, and yes, God will deliver you out of that situation. And there are times that you're going to take a stand for God, and he's going to allow you to suffer like Jesus did. And the question for you is, if he lets you go into the fire, is he enough for you? Because the only way that we have courage to stand and suffer for what's right is if we know that Jesus is enough. It reminds me of a young a Christian leader in Hong Kong, <coughs> excuse me, a courageous man named Derek Lamb. You may have read about him. In August of 2017, he wrote an article in the New York Times about the suppression of human rights for Christians in China. And he writes, let me uh, quote, since I was 16 years old, I wanted to be a pastor. I was raised in a Christian family, raised on biblical principles that informs my democratic activism these past six years and is probably the reason that I'm likely to go to jail next month and to be barred from ever being a pastor. And he shares about the situation there that uh, what we see happening is that believers are forced to worship in underground churches or uh, governments are te- the government is tearing down crosses and church buildings and expelling missionaries from China. And the only way that churches can avoid trouble is if we stay quiet and small and bow to the leader of China and to his policies. And he concludes by, with his bold declaration, there's nothing that I, that I would love more than to be able to become a pastor and preach the gospel in Hong Kong, but I will never do so if it means making Jesus bow down to the president of China. Instead, I'm going to continue fighting for religious freedom, even if I have to do so suffering behind bars. You see, if you know that God loves you, even if what happens to you is not good, holy, and just, you know a loving God will use it by uh, be used by a good, holy, and just God to help you to experience more of Jesus, to make you more like Jesus. Romans chapter eight, verse twenty-eight and twenty-nine tells us, "You will know with unshakable confidence that God loves me, that He has a future for me in this life and the one to come, and one way or another, that we're going to get through this with Him." Now, if the story ended there, it would be remarkable, right? This is a remarkable human uh, declaration of, of courageous faith. But the story gets better. Look at me with me, verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. And because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed the very men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, didn't we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, oh, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire. They are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the God. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace and declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together, saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not burned not harmed excuse me and no smell of fire had come upon them so this is the moment verse 19 through 21 the king is furious he orders that the furnace be fired up seven times more than normal and he takes his his strongest soldiers has them tie up and toss in these three boys with all their flammable clothes on so they can be human torches Verse 22 and 23, as they cast these three men bound helplessly into the fire, the heat is so fierce, it actually kills the executioner guards. But here's the moment. I don't want you to miss this. Verse 24 and 25, Nebuchadnezzar cannot believe his eyes. He rises to his feet. He's talking to his advisors, but he's looking at the fire. Didn't we toss in three men? Yep. But there's four. There's another. And they're walking around this fire unhurt. The only thing that's burned off is their chains. And this fourth person, he is radiating glory like a son of the gods. And as New Testament Christians, we know that's a pretty safe bet it is not just a son of the gods, it is the Son of God. As most theologians agree, this is a pre incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. Verses 26 and 27, this astonished king, he declares, You servants of the most high God, come out here. He finds that the fire had no power over them. Their hair isn't singed, their clothes aren't burned, there's not even a whiff of smoke as they come out. Now, I need you to hear this this morning because some of you are either going through a tough situation or you're about to. And you wonder, where's God in this? I've been praying. I thought he would help me. I thought he would deliver me from this situation. And I want you to hear me clearly. Did you see this in this passage? God did not save them from the fire. He was with them in it. Someone needs to hear that this morning. Because a lot of times we get our faith turned upside down because we expect God to do things our way. Why didn't you take this, this trial, this suffering, away from me? I tried to follow you and do the right thing, and yet I still suffer for it. Why didn't you take, keep me from this fire? God didn't save them from the fire. He was with them in it. And so for you and I, we can be confident that God is with us no matter what happens in this world or in this fire. That there's a reason when when God prophesied about the coming of his son, he called him Emmanuel, God with us. That in the fire, he is with you. He is comforting you. He is strengthening you. He can give you peace. He gives us future and a hope in the fire. There was a fourth man with them. And as a result, they came out from the flame completely unharmed. The only thing that burned was the ropes that bound them. And I want you to see, But this points forward because this same fourth man will go to a cross. He will be thrown into the fires of judgment with us, the fires of judgment for our sin. He comes in and is thrown into it with us. And because he did, we come through that fire totally unharmed. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 said, There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Your hair is not singed by the judgment of Christ. Your sins. Your clothes are not burned by the fire of judgment. That He took that flame so that we can emerge safely. No trace of the fires of judgment anywhere on your body, on your clothes, on you. And the only thing burned away, just like them, the ropes that were binding you, the bo- your bondage to sin, gets burnt away. And so that what that means is that if He went into the ultimate fire of judgment for you and me at the cross and kept us completely safe, completely free from harm there, do you think that he will be with you and keep you in whatever lesser fire that you experience, that you go through now? The God who died for you, the God who saves you in that fire, will definitely preserve you and be with you in this one. How does this story end? Verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a new decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks against anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to deliver, able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. How does the king respond? With praise. Verse 28, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his messenger. He delivered his servants. He overruled me as king. He is the God above kings. And you remember at the beginning of this story, his first degree was arrogance. That all people, all nations, all languages would bow to the king and kingdom of Babylon or die. In verse 29, he issues a new decree. Those same people, nations, and languages, you cannot speak against their God or die. That's not the best way to evangelize, but You get the picture. There's a change happening in him. And his whole reason for that is, for there is no other God who is able to rescue people this way. What is he doing there? He is publicly praising the God of heaven and earth as their Savior and as the Lord above him as King over the kings. And so we see in verse 30, instead of being annihilated in the fire, they're elevated in favor that God takes these three young men and turns this situation upside down because even though the threat was big, our God is far bigger. And what I want you to take away today, one last piece from this part of the passage, that there's this pattern of courageous faith in Daniel. And the pattern is that they're consistently being a testimony By praising God publicly. Remember back in chapter 2, verse 30? After interpreting the king's dream, what does Daniel do? He says to the king, it's not because I have more wisdom than anyone else, but this mystery was revealed to me by the God of heaven. He publicly, in front of the king, gives glory to God. Chapter 3, verse 17, we just read it today. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They say to the king, we testify to you that the God we serve is able to deliver us and that he's still good, even if he doesn't. And then, right here in this part of the passage, even this pagan king, who we're gonna see his faith kind of goes up and down throughout the, this, uh, this, from the beginning of Daniel till now, even this pagan king is publicly giving glory to this God who is a great deliverer. And so, likewise, as we consider having courageous faith in the fires of your Babylon, I know this is a really, like, it's one of those stories that, I like, yes, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, for me, no, not quite there yet. As you consider having courageous faith, perhaps let's start with a small step, a bold step for you, though. So I talked about with you that each month we're going to give you these monthly kingdom challenges from the book of Daniel, for you to, something for you to practice for a whole month. And so today this is what I want you to do. I want to challenge you to, like them, to be a testimony by praising God publicly each day. And this is how you're gonna do it. Every day, starting this week, you're gonna practice praise as a way of life. And there's two practical steps I'm gonna give you. Very simple, I'm gonna post it on our website and on our Facebook page so you won't forget it. I'm gonna keep bugging you about it. I'm gonna ask you next week, how did it go? And you think like, you won't ask me, you don't even know my name. Yes I do, I'm starting to remember, like bumping into people like Francesca, and I know her name now, so I'm gonna ask you, Francesca, how did it go in this area? Things like that, all right? So, here's the two steps for you, right? Number one is that the first step is when you wake up, when you're getting ready for your day, start your day with praise. What I mean is, you know, I know you feel like well, we're not these holy roller pastor type. Just for 5 minutes. I want you when you wake up, the first thing you do as you're brushing your teeth or going to the bathroom, whatever you do those first 5 minutes, just spend 5 minutes thanking God for who he is, what he has done in your life, acknowledging him as your deliverer, as your savior, as the Lord above all these other things in this life, including the priorities that you need to get to. This is why it's important. Because Praise sets our minds and hearts on a trajectory for the rest of the day. You start your day with praise, it puts you on the right mindset so that your heart and your mind are going in the right direction. That you're thinking about Jesus, you're thanking Jesus, and that gives you the initiative to practice the next step. This is the step I actually want you to get to. When you're practicing praise in the morning, it'll help you later in the day to praise Him in maybe a conversation. Maybe when you're at home or at work or at the gym or at the store or at the cafe or whatever it may be that you would look for find an opportunity to praise God publicly each day. And all I mean by that is, you don't have to sound like Pastor Josh, like, oh, praise the Lord of heaven and earth, like in front of your friends, and they're like, what is wrong with you? But it simply means to give credit to God for what he has done. You know, I see some of you do it all the time. You know, you're talking to some of your friends work. you know, I'm really thankful, you know, I was really depressed, having a hard time, and I thank the Lord, like, he, he really lifted my spirits in my time of need simple it's just giving credit to god for what he is doing in your work in your life in your family in your ministry and look for opportunities to do it every day you you know what i pray with my kids every every night and the three things we practice is giving thanks to god saying our sorries to god for sins we've done and also asking god for help what are the helps and even they can find at least something that they can thank god for So I know you can do it too, and you can say it to someone near you. And so um, if you do this daily, what happens is not only will praise become part of your normal vocabulary, because the reality is a lot of times many of our relationships are focused only on the negative things. God, my life sucks. God, I need this. God, I need that. But learning to develop praise as part of our normal vocabulary, and what's going to happen is it's going to transform you. It transforms our awareness of God, our experience of God our thankfulness towards God. Whew, we're running it's a little past time. This past July, uh, my 10-year-old son, Indy, he took me aside, and uh, he said, Daddy, um, I think that I heard God speak to me for the first time. It was kind of exciting, but then also kind of like, what kind of crazy thought do you have in your mind, son? But God, I, I think God spoke to me for the first time in my heart. I said, okay, let's talk about it. God wants me to share my money and a Bible with a homeless person. It's great, right? This is the model at our church. Let's share a tangible and a spiritual blessing to people so that they get the gospel, right? I said, okay, let's do it. Let's just try it as an experiment. I said, it has to be your money, though. No, no, you're not asking me for, for money. If This is God telling you to do it. And he did. Now, he doesn't really understand the value of money, so you can't see it, but if you look closely, that's a $50 bill in his Bible. He doesn't understand. It's fine, okay? I said, it's your money. You decide what you want to do with it. So he took his own money, and then we took one of the Bibles that we give away to people at church and we talked through, coached them a little bit about um, what does Jesus want you to say to that person? And so we drove out, some of you know, to the Lucky Plaza uh, right down on A Street and we walked around looking for a homeless person and, and usually there's a lot of, of, of uh, unhoused people in that plaza, but after about an hour of fruitless searching, he was discouraged. I said, okay, son, let's take a break. You know what? Um, let's take, let me take you to Jamba Juice give you something to drink. He's like, why? I didn't do anything yet. I don't deserve a reward. You know, he, he started thinking that way. He's like, here's an opportunity for grace. It's not because you, all God cares about is your faithfulness. Let him be in charge of the fruitfulness, right? And so we're inside, and, as, uh, and I tell him, you know what, uh, Indy, why don't you pray? Let's pray, and I want you to ask Jesus to lead you to the right person. Good moment. Thank you, God. Right after we prayed, we received our order, and then he looked right outside, and he grabs my arm, he points out and that's the lady. That's the one Jesus wants me to give this to. And I love this moment. He pulls a Daniel. This is my whole point of this story. He doesn't point to his own ability or generosity. He simply gives credit to Jesus publicly. He says to this lady, uh, excuse me, just want to tell you, Jesus loves you. And he wants to give you some money for food. For, and he wants to give you a Bible for your heart. I taught him to say that. And, and he did this on his own initiative, I wrote the church address inside the Bible if you want to come visit me. It is sweetness to my soul to see him growing in courageous faith. But it's just a starting point. The reality is, for you and me, life is more complicated. Life is filled with pressures, dangers, fires that force us to choose the values of Babylon or the goodness of God. And so as you go back into the world today, may the testimony of Scripture empower you to be courageous in the fire. Be ready for the threats from Babylon. Be courageous in standing for your faith. Be confident that God is with us. And be a testimony giving credit to Jesus today. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer? (laughs) Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for this historical record of what you did in the lives of Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. Thank you for being a faithful God. Thank you for teaching us to be courageous, to trust that you are the God who is able to deliver us out of fire and to still trust that you are good, even when you don't, that you have a better plan and that having you is better than all the treasures and pleasures of this world, than, all of, than even escaping uh, the pains of suffering or death, that you are better. May that be the conviction of our heart, that we might stand in courage in the fire. In the name of Jesus.